If you're new and visiting this morning, you might not realize we're in the end of, or at the end of a, a series on Isaiah. Uh, last week we looked at Isaiah 53, the, the suffering servant. And this week we're looking at Isaiah 61. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, open them up to Isaiah 61. This is really a, a fantastic passage because this passage possibly more than any other passage in the Old Testament, possibly more than any other passage in Scripture, tells us what the heart of Jesus Christ is. What he understood his purpose in coming was, it really reveals his heart. So if you've ever wondered, if you've ever wondered what was Jesus Christ's central message, perhaps there's no better passage, no no greater passage in the Old Testament. In fact, possibly in Scripture that really reveals us his heart, his passion, what he cared about. Uh, so read with me uh, as we start with Isaiah 61.1. I'm going to read and then pray. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Let's pray. Father, Father, I just want to confess this morning that that I come in weakness and that I need your help. Lord, this week, you know I've been just so caught up in a desire to be impressive, to impress other people with my words. Well, I pray you would forgive me, Lord. I pray you would strengthen me, Lord. I pray that Jesus Christ this morning would be glorified in and through your word. Lord, we need your help. Would you manifest your power in the midst of weakness, Lord? Speak to us, Lord, we pray. Help us to see something of your amazing grace. Help us to see something of the heart of your Son, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, this morning I wanted to start with a question. And the question I really wanted to start 
uh, asking us this morning is, have you ever wondered why it's so hard to receive criticism? Have you ever wondered that? Why there's something about a critique of you that just makes your skin crawl, that, that just makes you just, 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 just revile at the thought of it. There's something so difficult about receiving criticism, isn't there? You know, I was thinking uh, back to my work at the hospital. I work as a physiotherapist in the city. And some months ago, I had a, a really challenging patient. This patient was a, a difficult person. This patient was an anxious person, a fussy person. And it was just really one of those instances in caring for this person that it was just a challenge to me. I was, it, was, it was just so difficult. And, you know, to see that person finally get better and go home was like a sigh of relief. Um, but some weeks later, uh, my manager came and spoke to me and said, Brendan, we've received a complaint. We've received a complaint about you. And it turns out this patient had written a two- to three-page dossier outlining their grievances, not just by me, but by the whole hospital. And I'd like to say that I responded to receiving that complaint with grace, with trust in the Lord. But overwhelmingly, my feeling was one of anxiety and fear. You know, it's hard to receive criticism. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to receive criticism? I think there's many reasons. I think fear of men. I think we're afraid of what people will think of us. I think fear of the consequences of our actions. We're afraid of what will happen from the things that we've done. But a big reason, I believe, is that actually we believe we're good people. We believe we're good people. We believe the doctrine of sin, yes, don't get me wrong, but overall, we believe we're good. And we evaluate ourselves and others on the basis of what we do, on the basis of our works. We evaluate ourselves and others on the basis of works and we buy into what our culture says about us. Our culture says your value as a person comes from what you achieve. Your value as a person comes from how much you earn, how much respect you have, your intelligence, your potential, your gifting, your intelligence. We, we buy into this way of thinking and criticism challenges us. It exposes us and our deep flaws. And we're left to ask the question, if I fail at this, does this mean I'm worthless? If I fail at this career, does this mean I lose my value as a person? We find criticism hard to receive because it challenges our view of ourselves, a view which is usually based on our works, the things we do. But this works-based assessment of ourselves is the very opposite of the way God assesses us. It is the absolute opposite of the way he assesses us. And in Isaiah 61, we see that this very thing, that God does not deal with us according to our works. He does the very opposite. He deals with us according to grace. 
And that's what this message is about. It's all about grace. Behold your Redeemer in his grace. Well, you're probably thinking at this point, come on, Brendan. We're we're always talking about grace here, aren't we? Now, sovereign grace, for crying out loud. I mean, it's boring. Come on. Every week, grace, grace, grace. What's so amazing about grace? I know it. I know it. I've heard it all before. There's nothing new. It's the same old thing that you're going to say. Well, friends, I want to put to you today that if grace isn't amazing to you, it means that you haven't understood it. Let me, let me just read uh, something that I was uh, reading just this past week from Sinclair Ferguson that really spoke to me in his book, uh, By Grace Alone. Sinclair Ferguson writes, he writes, Being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. It is a litmus test of how firm and real is our grasp of the Christian gospel and how close is our walk with Jesus Christ. The growing Christian finds that grace, the grace of God, astonishes and amazes. Yet frequently we take the grace of God for granted. We think, of course God is gracious. Or of course we deserve His grace after all. Are we not His people? We may never say these things. But when we think like this, the grace of God ceases to be amazing. Sadly, it also ceases to be grace. Friends, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is amazing. It's something we do not deserve. It is an absolute scandal. And we can buy into this culture of evaluating ourselves on the basis of our works and forget that that God operates completely different. He operates in the exact opposite way and we can take grace for granted. So this morning, really, I want, I want us to be freshly amazed by God's grace. This message, Behold Your Redeemer in His Grace, three simple points. The messenger, the message, and the many. Three simple points, but, but, but one hope, one thing that I'm just going to be nailing, nailing, one nail I'm going to be hammering on this morning, which is that, that we would be freshly amazed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope of this message. Well, let's get stuck in our first point, the messenger. Our passage really is, it's a a song. It's a song of a herald shouting out good news, proclaiming good news. And so I want to just pause here and, and really, really look and see what this herald, who we find out is our Lord Jesus Christ, reveals of himself. Just by way of context, we're in this final section of the book of Isaiah, chapters 56 through to 66, which is, which is really all about God's plan of renewal, how he's going to renew the heavens and the earth, how he's going to restore and reconcile his people. And there's this selection of servant songs that stretch through Isaiah, from Isaiah 42 all the way through here to Isaiah 61, the final servant song, the climactic servant song, the greatest of the servant songs, the song which in fact summarizes this whole final section of the book. And in fact, we we know it's the climax of all the songs. We know that there's something particularly special about this, this song because Jesus 
uses it himself. Jesus uses it to commence his ministry. You know, in Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus stands up in his local synagogue in Nazareth and reads from this psalm, reads from this uh, passage, sorry, this song. He reads from it and then sits down and the whole of the assembly is looking at him. And they're staring at him, thinking, what is he going to say next? And Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is fulfilled as I read it. This is fulfilled with my coming, says our Lord Jesus. So let's begin our passage from uh, verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The messenger. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. Jesus was the one who was spirit filled. And this feeling of the spirit, this placing of the Holy Spirit upon him, this anointing of the Holy Spirit, this presence of the Holy Spirit marks him as the servant that's been spoken about throughout Isaiah. In the first of the servant songs in Isaiah 42, we read, God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Hear this. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. But the presence of the Holy Spirit, it not only marks him as the servant, the presence of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ means that he is a servant. The fact that Jesus was filled with the Spirit means that he is a servant. Well, what do I mean by this? We read something that I think speaks to this in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We find that our Lord Jesus Christ, his mind, his heart, his ministry was to empty himself. But not emptying himself in in the sense of just casting off his desires. The Lord Jesus Christ emptied himself. He laid down his rights. He laid down his rights to do as he wills for the sake of the Holy Spirit coming dwelling in him and filling in him. He laid down his rights and came as a servant filled with the Spirit to do the will of him who sent him. As Jesus himself says in John chapter 6, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. My point is this, to be filled with the Spirit is, by definition, to serve as an instrument of our sovereign Lord. Those that are filled with the Spirit are filled with the Spirit of God the Father and the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are filled with all of his desires and heart. They are, they are servants of his. Jesus Christ 
is the one on whom the Spirit rests. And therefore, by definition, he's a servant. He's a servant of the Lord. Jesus Christ emptied himself. And so he was full of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, perfectly manifested in his life. He was therefore a servant. Isaiah 42, 2, that first servant song, it says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Jesus Christ came as a servant. He came to serve the will of his Father. This passage says he wasn't about a loud public ministry, not at all. He was about humble service. In the third servant song, Isaiah 55 to 7, the servant says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. Isn't that beautiful? That our Lord Jesus Christ came as a servant with a quiet confidence that the Lord hears him. Filled with a heart that beat just for doing his will. He came to serve, friends. But we can so easily forget that our Lord Jesus Christ came as a servant, can't we? That he was a friend of the outcasts, prostitutes, tax cheats, lepers, those that people in our society wanted nothing to do with. They were his friends. That he had a small and unpopular ministry. That he was mocked, shamed, that he suffered, but he had his eyes on the Father's will. You know, just this week, I've been just freshly convicted by my heart that so often finds itself chasing after my own glory, chasing after praise of people, forgetting that our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who I follow, was first and foremost a servant, someone who came to serve. You know, so often we put Christian glam on the word servant, don't we? It has this, you know, special gloss as though it was something special or particularly glamorous. You know, if you're in a room, the servants are the least. The servants exist to serve someone else for someone else's interest. A servant means that you work and someone else gets the credit. That's what it means to be a servant. You know, I was just thinking about it this week. Imagine that you were a servant in the house of Queen Elizabeth II. And imagine that you were serving away, preparing for her a great banquet, and the leaders of the nations were there. And at the end of the banquet, a rich banquet, a rich feast in which they all enjoyed, who will they praise? Will they praise her servant? No, they praise the queen who's put on the banquet. And so it is with us. You know, we exist just to serve to serve his purposes, to serve for his glory. It's not about us. We follow in the footsteps of a servant. But he wasn't just a servant, he was more than that. Let's read that first verse again. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord God has anointed me. 
literally, he's messiahed me. He's mashiached me. He's anointed me. He's, he's made me as a king. He's not just a servant, but he's a king. In the second servant song, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. You see here, the servant is both the servant of rulers in one breath and the other, the one for whom all the kings shall bow. He's the servant king. He's the king who also serves. In chapter 9, we learn he's not just the king, but he's also the God-man king. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the almighty God himself. And I think it's this point, when we understand the truth of all that Christ is, that he was both God eternal and man. God eternal and man, king above all kings. And yet, come to earth as a servant. That we can begin to see that this messenger, this herald, this one for whom Isaiah is speaking, is a messenger full of grace. Full of amazing grace. That he would humble himself to come, not as a powerful king above all kings, ruling in authority, although he does, but as a servant. Well, point one, the messenger. Point two, the message. It's not just that the messenger is full of grace, but also his message is full of grace. I want to read one more time uh, this first verse for us, because I think it's got such richness in it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You know, this this passage uses two parallel ideas in, in, in Hebrew. He's come to proclaim good news. Literally, in the Greek translation, he's come to, of this passage in Hebrew, the Greek translation, literally, he's come to gospelize. He's come to share this good news. And he uses two, two really parallel ideas. First, he's come to preach good news to the poor. And that word in Hebrew literally means to bow down. Those that have been humbled by life. The second one is, the second idea is the brokenhearted, literally the shattered in heart. That is those that because of circumstances in life have just had their hearts completely shattered, disappointed, despaired, humbled. And on one level, here he's talking about verse 3, those who grieve in Zion, his people, who have just had their hopes completely shattered by life, by oppression. First the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then later the Persians, then after that the Greeks, then after that the Romans. A people that have just been humbled by oppression after oppression after oppression. And so when I, when I, when I often hear people say to me, how can, 
how can a good God allow suffering in this world? I just think of this passage. Because here we learn that Jesus Christ our Lord has come to bind the broken heart. Where is God in suffering? He's come to bind. He's come to heal. He's come to mend. He's come to gather up and restore. That's one meaning of this passage. But I think there's a deeper meaning as well. You know, Jesus, when he's preaching uh, on the, the Beatitudes, on, on uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5.3, he says, he says, the poor shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are literally the humble, the bowed down, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus in this passage is talking about his disciples, those that humbly receive his word. And that's, that's really what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's talking about those that humbly receive his very words. And his, his word to them, his message to them here in this passage is good news good news, guys. I've come to bind up those broken hearts. I've come to preach a message of good news to those that are downcast. Well, it's more than that. Let's read right down the end of this verse. Let's keep reading. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. That phrase, to proclaim liberty to the, cap- to the captives, is an exact phrase that's used in Leviticus 25. An exact phrase that's used in Le- Leviticus 25 to talk about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was something that God had given to his people every 50 years. Every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, or literally the year of the ram's horn, when the priests would travel throughout the land blowing this ram's horn, announcing this year of Jubilee had come. It was a year when slaves would be freed. Anyone who was in slavery would be set free. It was a year in which anyone who had had to sell their possessions, their family's land, because of their poverty, would receive it back. It was a year-long year of celebration, of resting, of reconciliation, of restoration, of freedom, of pardon. And on one level, you see, God's people had betrayed him. As we've seen throughout the book, they turned their backs on him and they've been punished with slavery and exile. All of these nations who had reigned over them. And for people that are in slavery and exile, it's a message of redemption. It's a message of release from slavery. It's a picture of the final restoration of all things. I mean, just, just with, imagine with me just for a second of being bound in chains in prison. Of being held in captive in slavery. You know, more recently, and as I've spent time thinking about this, it's just considering everything that's happening with Mel has just brought for me just just a fresh deepness and a significance in understanding this. I mean, many of you know about my sister Melody, who's been in prison for the past two and a half months in Russia. She was traveling with 
a group of five others uh, from Belarus through to Russia without visas when they were arrested, charged with conspiring to illegally enter Russia, a, a charge that carries six years in prison, and thrown into prison. And one of the most challenging things is we've had so little contact with her. When the embassy came and visited her in her prison, she was in a small dark cell with three older Russian ladies, hardened criminals who we found out spent the first month abusing her, hadn't been allowed out of her cell in the past week and a half except for 15 minutes with rationed hot water once per week, minimal food. Now, praise God, I mean, she's now been moved to uh, another cell which she shares with four other people who treat her a lot better. And, and praise God that she loves Jesus Christ. She's trusting that he's working for her good even in the midst of this. But I just think about being in prison and hearing that ram's horn. Hearing that cry of jubilee, a cry of release from captivity, a cry of the year of the Lord's favor. Imagine hearing that. Isn't that a beautiful message for a people in captivity? Yet there's a far greater freedom that Jesus Christ is announcing to us in and through this, greater than physical release from captivity. That is freedom to a spiritually enslaved people. You know, Jesus said to the Jews in John chapter 8, if you listen to what I'm saying, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they mock him. They say, what? Who are you to talk to us about being enslaved? We have never been enslaved to anyone. We're Abraham's children. And Jesus looks them in the eye and he says, whoever sins is a slave sin. Spiritual slavery. Enslaved to our own passions and desires. That's what Ephesians says. It says we were spiritually dead in our trespasses. Following the prince of this world. Carrying out the desires of our flesh. We were spiritually completely dead. Like a corpse in a stream. Traveling with the tide of this world. Helpless without any hope. Yet Jesus Christ, full of grace, though we deserve to be enslaved, comes and preaches jubilee. Freedom. Let me just, let me just read this verse one more time. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That, that opening of the prison to those who are bound is actually, it's a fairly difficult passage in Hebrew. And so the version that Jesus reads from uh, in Greek, he reads a Greek translation of that, that translate this, translates this passage as this. Open the eyes of the blind. That there is this spiritual enslavement this spiritual enslavement, exactly what Josh was talking about this morning with eyes that are closed so that we can't even see the slavery that we're in. And Jesus comes to proclaim liberty, to open the eyes of the blind, those who are in prison, those who are bound, those who are captives, released from prison. 
And so echoing, so entering into this new era of grace, the year of the Lord's favor, so that, so that for Melody in prison, even though she's physically bound and yet amazingly, yet beautifully free, with eyes that are open to Christ, with a sovereign Lord that is reigning over all, with complete freedom in Him, despite being held in prison. This is a message of grace. This is a message of good news for the lowly, freedom for the captives. And yet this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. It goes so much further than this. You know, Jesus stands up in this synagogue and he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. And he sits down and, and, and preaches and he says, look, this, guys, this is fulfilled now. This is fulfilled in your hearing. And, and, and then he goes on to say this in Luke 4.23. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You might sit there and think, that's an odd thing to say. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus, why would you say that? That word acceptable in Greek only occurs two times in this whole book that Luke writes. The previous time is this. I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus stands up and says, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sits down and he says, no prophet is favorable in his hometown. Our Lord Jesus Christ came to preach a gospel of grace, of good news, of favor. And what did he receive in return? No favor at all. He came preaching a gospel of grace. And what did he receive in return? Disgrace. Jesus Christ came into this world, though he was the servant king, having in his hometown preached this gospel of good news, what do they do after Jesus finishes preaching this passage to his people? They revile him. They chase him out of his synagogue. He is disgraced. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the king of all kings, comes humbly as a man, though he was God himself comes as a servant, though he is also the king, comes and is mocked and is shamed, and he puts that cross on his back. And as they revile him, as they shame him, as they disgrace him, he marches on towards that hill. And as they nail him to the cross, there he stands for the joy set before him, enduring its shame, enduring its disgrace, Bearing all the sins, all the shame of those who rightly should stand there defiled and bearing the wrath of God. And yet he bears it himself. Amazing grace. All our sins, all our shame placed on him. Amazing grace. A message of grace from a gracious messenger. Friends, do you realize that we now live in 
the new era of the Lord's favor, the Lord's acceptance. Not only a gracious messenger, but a message of grace. Point three, the many. It's not just that the messenger is gracious or that his message is one of grace, but that he has brought in a new era of grace, the year of the Lord's favor. Read with me verse 3. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint heart, faint spirit. Hear this, this is the purpose in it all, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, righteous people, solid, immovable, towering like a mighty oak tree, abounding like a forest of oak trees. You know, if you're struggling with sin, this morning, if you're struggling with persistent sin, a persistent sin that weighs on your shoulders and leaves you feeling condemned and guilty, God's plan and purpose for you is to make you a, a towering oak of righteousness, unshakable, immovable. But more than this, Paul writes in Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You know, this is not just the picture of a few trees, isolated big tree, like a big oak tree there and a big oak tree there, and that's it. No, this is many. The plan is for a forest of trees, abounding many, many trees. You know, are you praying for revival? Take heart. The Lord's plan is for many. The Lord's plan is for many Oaks of righteousness for his glory, and he is jealous for his glory. Well, let's read up again uh, in verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. You know, here he's picking up, the servant is picking up a theme that is used elsewhere in Amos 9 and 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 also in Acts 15, and that's this idea of God's people being like ruined cities all around the world, despairing, devastated, trodden down by their enemies. And he takes up this theme elsewhere in Scripture to talk about the preaching of the gospel being like the rebuilding of cities all around the world. You know, have you ever, are you sitting here in church just this morning and, and, and tempted to think to yourself, I feel like I don't even have a place in this church. I feel like I don't really belong. What's my part to play? Could the Lord use me in this church? Hear these words. They shall rebuild. They shall rebuild. They shall rebuild. The Lord's plan is not to use some, but to use all of his people. For the purpose of building together his people. Isn't that amazing grace? The Lord could do it just by the breath of his mouth. And yet he ordains to use his people to rebuild devastated cities. He, he plans to use his people, to use you and me to build together his people all around the world. 
That's amazing grace. Let's keep reading. It goes on even more. I love this. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and, and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations and in their glory you shall boast. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You know, Peter puts it this way in his first letter. He says, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Servant priests, just like your servant priest king. Isn't that scandalous grace? That for a people that spat on him, for a people that nailed him to that cross, he would take you, his enemy, and make you a priest. Make you one who would... Be so connected with him that you would teach the nations about what he's like. That you would be his voice amongst the people of the world. Declaring to them the truths about God and what he's like. Declaring to them that message of the gospel. A priest. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that scandalous grace? You know, are you feeling distant from God? Are you feeling like, He's far from you. Hear this passage. It says you're a priest. You are a royal priesthood. Not just those up the front. All of you. All of us. That's scandalous grace. A servant priest just like your servant king. But not only is the messenger full of grace, not only is his message one of radical grace, but he has grace for the many. A grace that continues today. You know, just by way of closing, as I was considering this passage, I, I just believe that there's some here this morning um, that just like me this past week, you're realizing now that, that you've grown familiar with grace. And grace for you hasn't been that amazing. And you've been experiencing some of the fruit of growing overly familiar with grace. Fruits like ungratefulness. Fruits like a critical spirit, fruits like a defensiveness to criticism, fruits like a persistent lack of joy in your life. And in this moment, you feel the Lord addressing you that you have grown overly familiar with grace. You have believed that you have deserved Christ. And you've been feeling that you're not that bad at all, in fact. Well, if that is your situation, just like me. You need to repent and ask the Lord to forgive you for that. You need to look at the cross and all Christ did for you as he hung on that cross for you. For the rest of us, I hope we've seen this morning something of the heart of our Lord Jesus and and just the amazing grace that he proclaimed as he stood in that synagogue in Nazareth, in his own hometown, that though he was the king above all kings and worthy of all praise, that he would come and preach a message of grace, even though he would knew he would receive disgrace in return. Isn't that amazing? The kind, tender heart of our king. I hope this morning that we've been freshly 
amazed by the grace of our Lord Jesus. Why don't you join with me in praying? Lord Jesus, your grace is amazing. Your worth, more than anything we could measure. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of honor. And yet you came and you humbled yourself to be a servant and die on a cross for our sins. Amazing grace, Lord. Unspeakable grace, Lord. And Lord, we pray you forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for the way in which we speak of your grace and believe your grace to be ordinary, to be unamazing. Lord, oh, we repent of dust and ashes for such blasphemy. But your grace is truly amazing. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit this morning afresh. Dazzle us this morning afresh by your grace. May the fruit of our lives be not criticism, Lord, but thankfulness. Not despair, but hope.